0: this morning we will be in Luke chapter 16 verses 19 through 31, Luke chapter 16 verses 19 through 31, and I'll bring the text up on the screen, be reading from the English Standard Version. Now um, bear in mind that uh, Jesus is speaking here, he is speaking to the Pharisees. As he shares his parable, and that will become important later. But hear the word of the Lord. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So we play a uh, lot of board games in our house. And one game that doesn't get often played anymore uh, is, uh, but it's still in there. We, we have a lot too many board games, but um, but there's an up is it's an updated version of the game uh, that I played as a kid called the game of life. And uh, it's funny only until I became an adult that I realized why my mother wasn't really that excited to play the game of life. Uh, so um, you're like, let's play a game where we simulate middle class American lifestyle. Okay, this is exciting. Uh, so uh, the goal of the game is to finish with the most money. That's how you win. Now. I think the more I think about the game and the more I think uh, the, the values here are a little messed up uh, uh, and you, know, you, win at the, you win at the end of your life if you have more money than everybody else. It's kind of a bad uh, value to communicate but you don't want to make too much of it. Um, now at the end of the game though, there was, uh, the game that I played, it's not there anymore, but the game, the, the original game um, that I played, there was, there was a space called the Day of Reckoning. Everyone had to deal with the Day of Reckoning you couldn't avoid it. You had to stop there. It was one of the red spaces. You couldn't go past it. And there you would receive a certain amount of money for each of your children, and then you'd have to pay off all your debts. And if you thought you had enough money, you could go on to Millionaire Acres. And if you didn't, then you could pick a number on the 10-digit on the ten, ten spinner dial and just spin and take your chances and hope your number came up. Because if not, you go to the poor farm. It's literally what the, what the rules say but that is often how a lot of people treat eternity. Uh, all the most recent surveys show us that we live in a society that believes in some sort of god. We have we are a spiritual people. Still the atheism is not taken over. All right <laughs> but even if christianity is waning. But when it comes to facing god after we die, many people think that they have enough good to overcome their bad debts, and at least they have more good than others. There's other people who just seem content to spin the dial and take their chances. But today, Jesus tells the Pharisees a parable that confronts us with two things. First, there, there will be a day coming, a day of reckoning that we cannot escape, where we will face judgment. And second, if we are to survive that day, we have to face the real problem. And we'll look at each of those this morning. So first, let's consider that we face a reckoning at the end of our lives. Let me see this in verses 19 through 26. Now, there are some difficulties with interpreting this parable. We'll talk about them in a few minutes, but I just want to start with what the what this parable clearly communicates, uh, which is, first of all, that eternal punishment and reward is real. Eternal punishment and reward is real. We are presented with two men, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is not named to his own, uh, um, his own shame, uh, and, but he is described as a man living in what one commentator called ostentatious luxury, Ostentatious is the perfect word that fits that word. Ostentatious sounds ostentatious, right? It lives in ostentatious luxury. This is Beverly Hills mansion type luxury. That's what we're talking about here. Purple clothing was the most expensive clothing. It was the clothing of royalty. Uh, you know, and, and also, in, in, in a time where food was often hard to come by, this man feasted sumptuously. I it's reminded of uh, it's interesting um, in uh, in the, uh, the the novel by um, Count of Monte Cristo by uh, by Dumas, um, the Count of Monte Cristo. He impresses everyone. Everyone is just he has this like limitless wealth, and everyone is just so just wildly amazed at, at what he does and and at what he serves for food and what does he serve for food? He serves imported fish they're like, oh, you know, how could he do that? And that doesn't really impress us today because we're just like, I just go to Walmart and I can get that imported fish or that imported fish. You know, it's like uh, they didn't have refrigeration. Like it's so he it was it was abs- it was the absolute height of luxury to have to have seafood imported in from somewhere else. I mean, you just couldn't do that. Even if you were well to do, you didn't do that because it was so exorbitantly expensive. It uh, tells you one thing about the luxuries that we enjoy today, um, but also just the, uh, this description: is this man, by the, he, he would just lived like a king, and one, and and he also apparently uh, the only other thing we know about him is that he apparently knew who Lazarus was. He knew where Lazarus was. He was at the front gate, and uh, and, uh, and, and and the rich man apparently displayed, one author said, was intentional indifference a heartless, cruel, and knowing neglect of this man in front of his house. Now, Lazarus, on the other hand, was a poor man with, who was in ill health, such that he was covered with sores. And we're told that he longed to eat the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. And, and now also, what's interesting is so back in the day, they didn't have napkins. Oftentimes, you would use like bread to, to soak up whatever stuff was on your hands, and then you would take that and throw it under the table, and the animals would eat it. And so it's kind of essentially, that's what he's hoping for. He wants to throw away bread napkins. <laughs> like, I wish I could eat that, is what he wants. And, uh, but um, uh, the only thing he got were dogs, uh, uh, which, for all intents and purposes, uh, it would be as if saying that rats were coming and, and licking his wounds. Right, that's that's what the visual is there. They didn't have a the ancient world didn't have a positive view of dogs like we do today. Now we're like, oh, doggies, you know. Like but then they were kind of unclean scavengers, and they they you know viewed them as uh, as disgusting animals. And so the uh, and now the name Lazarus is interesting. It's a shortened version of the name Eleazar for uh, Lazar, and uh, and and the name means he whom God helps. He whom God. Helps. That is, while the rich man did not help Lazarus, uh, um, uh, Lazarus died, and we see the angels personally escort Lazarus to the side of Abraham, the supreme place of honor for any Israelite. Conversely, the rich man died, and he went into torment, into Hades. That is what we would call hell. And so we have this situation where a man who helps himself, always and continually, ends up in the place of loss, pain, and torment, while the one whom God helps ends up in the place of comfort, honor, and rest. Whatever else we may say, one point is absolutely clear. There is a future state of punishment and reward in the end. We have pictured here in the rich man essentially the the, the very picture of the lover of money, the lover of money who is who has every whim indulged, who succeeds to do everything he desires to do and, uh, and what he receives in the end. Here is the man who gained the world but lost his soul. And we can make all the excuses and engage in all manner of distractions, but at the end of the day, we are either going to end up with God and comfort or in hell in torment. And so that means that the time to act is now. This parable confirms what the the author of Hebrews said, which is that it is appointed for each man to die once. That is, death comes for everyone, every one of us here today, the righteous and the wicked alike. But what comes after is very different, depending on where your help comes from. If our help comes from the world, then we will lose everything. But if our help comes from God, then we will have comfort. But as we consider Abraham's responses, we are confronted with the reality that not only is physical death a certainty for us, but also that eternal state is fixed. Uh, there, uh, what I mean here is there's no purgatory pictured here where. Uh, where the rich man can just work off his badness and over time get transferred over to Abraham's side. There is no movement. There is no relief. And so we see in death a great inversion of circumstances where the lover of money loses everything, but the lover of God has gained everything. We must then reckon with God with respect to the eternal state of our souls. It will not do to assume that we are going to be just fine because deep down we're good people, or we're just going to leave it up to chance, and, you know, I might, ju- I might just get in. I hope I do. But now we need to get into some of the difficulty here as, as we think about how to really apply this parable because because if you're like me, then you, the way you apply this parable is, you know, when I was leaving Walmart, I didn't give anything to that guy on the corner, and man, I am hosed, right? Well, let's go with what first. What is Jesus not saying? First, this parable is difficult, but it's difficult for a different reason than like the parable that dishonest manager was difficult. The parable that dishonest manager was difficult that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Because the meaning of it was very obscure and very hard to just, it wasn't readily available. Um, but, but for here, for this parable is confusing because the meaning seems very clear, very simple to comprehend. But, but, uh, uh, but it actually not, it's actually not as easy as we might think. And also there's a, no shortage of confusion about what information this parable is actually communicating to us about heaven and hell. Because the most common questions I get about this parable are, will I, uh, will I be able to communicate with people in hell? I've had people ask me that. I've asked, will people in hell be able to see those in heaven? You know what no one ever asked me? Do I get to sit by Abraham? Why? Well, I think because we understand that to be figurative language automatically. And so we, we, that doesn't even enter into a real possibility. And so what that tells us if we're dealing with figurative language is that figurative language is there to communicate principles. And so principles are be to be derived and also confirmed by other passages of Scripture. And so that's, that's the method for trying to figure out what information this, this communicates to us. Uh, and, so, uh, and so there's no other passage that say, yeah, you will literally be standing next to Abraham. Okay? One, you're just like, how is that physically possible? <laughs> like not everybody can stand next to Abraham. So what is what is this communicating to us? And we have to be careful about mining this thing. Like this is a gold mine for all this information about the afterlife, because it's not. Further, we have to be clear here that about what Jesus is not saying, he is not saying. And there's one author who said a list of things that Jesus is not saying, which people misunderstand about the scriptures. That it's not say, Jesus is not saying it's bad to have wealth or to be rich. He's not saying that no one has the right to be rich or wealthy. He is not saying that you should get rid of all your wealth or that it is incumbent upon you, Mr. Wealthy Person, to save the world. So what is Jesus saying? Well, Jesus is saying, as he has been saying, how we use our stuff And interact with our stuff in this life reveals our hearts and reveals our love or lack of love for God. Jesus is saying to us that, that for good or for ill, our current economic status is no indicator about our eternal status. And so we need to definitely not put our trust in riches, whether we have them or we long for more of them. And we we need to be reminded there have been millions and there continue to be millions of Christians who live and die in economic poverty who enter into the riches of glory in Christ. Jesus is inviting us to examine our hearts, to expose the idolatry that surrounds money and possessions. And so our first reaction then should not to be, you know, okay, well, Jesus, I'm really going to give to that charity this time. I'm really going to go, I'm going to go start this program over here. Okay. Um, Or or, or when I see that random guy at the, at the corner at the Walmart, I'm definitely going to give something to him. Okay. That's all right. Lazarus was at the man's gate. The rich man knew his name. He, and even after he died, he still thought Lazarus was a little, little servant to be sent around to, to do stuff for him, to you know, bring relief to him, or to go warn his, his family. You know, Lazarus still was just to, to, to the rich man's mind the beggar at the gate. And so, the, and so, Jesus is you know the rich man knew this man who this man was. This rich man knew this man was in need, and the rich man didn't care. And so Jesus is inviting us to ask ourselves, well, who is the Lazarus in our life? Is there someone like that, that we are actively neglecting, not caring about? Okay. Now, these issues can get complicated. I, un, I understand that. I know that. Okay. But there's a difference between wrestling with how do I best help the person in need that is near me than just heartlessly not caring. There's a difference between those two things. There's a difference between that and, you know, just not caring and despising and praying for God to give us wisdom to know how to help, how to care, what healthy boundaries we may need to set, what we can do or can't do, what might actually be helpful for this person. But this is why we this is why we have to start with our own hearts. Not just like fearfully going, oh, well, I'm going to do this and that and this and thing, or we're just kind of going through and thinking about all the people we missed opportunities with. We need to go back to our own hearts and examine ourselves and begin tearing down our idols, examining our own lives and rooting out the love of money that so qu- quietly sneaks in and starts to take root. So, and why do we need to do that? Because Jesus shows here the end of the lover of money is loss, torment. Whereas even if you have nothing and you're left, someone just drops you at the gate of someone who won't give you anything, your eternal reward is is secure in God. And so this invites us not simply to go to our checkbooks or go to our bank accounts and figure out how much money we have and to feel bad about it or to figure out all the stuff we need to give away but invites us here to face the real problem, which is the second thing we need to do in verses 27 to 31. And the real problem, first of all, is not a lack of evidence. The real problem is not a lack of evidence. The rich man seems to believe, again, that Lazarus can just be commanded and sent on errands for him. Uh, And and so first he wants Lazarus to come and to bring him some relief for for his suffering, uh, and then when Abraham refuses to do that and says, look, we can't do that anyway, because of the fixed nature of eternal states," the rich man wants Lazarus to be sent to his brothers. You know, if they see a resurrected guy, if a resurrected guy talks to them, then they'll believe. Abraham again says, no, because why? Because the scriptures are sufficient. Moses and the prophets are enough. But the rich man says, no, 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 no. The word of God is not sufficient. You don't know my brother's. You don't know our lifestyle. You don't know how it is. We need something more than that. The atheist uh, scientist Carl Sagan, who defined kind of a lot of the modern attitude towards Christianity and Christianity and and science, um, he said he liked to say about Christianity specifically, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. But what Jesus shares in this parable here is that even if you provide extraordinary evidence, it's not enough. It's not enough. If one will not listen to God's word, then they will not listen even if a resurrected person tells them about it. We know this is true because there was a real life Lazarus that Jesus brought back from the dead. And what was the Pharisees' response when they saw Lazarus brought back from the dead, did they say, oh, you know what? Jesus is right. He is the Christ. We need to repent and trust. And so we can enter the kingdom of God. They were like, they were like, hey, add him to the kill list, too. Because we like Jesus brought back to the dead when we need to kill Lazarus because he's poking holes in our plan. Right. We don't like him. We don't like the fact that he's alive. I mean, if we think about that. We're like. You don't like the fact that Jesus raised him from the dead. So you're going to plan his murder too. Do you even hear yourself? And they do and they don't care. And So when Carl Sagan demands extraordinary evidence and is presented with the resurrection of Christ and the evidence for the resurrection of Christ, which is massive, what does he do? He dismisses it. Others will say, No, I just don't find it interesting. I'm just not compelled. The problem is not the scriptures. It's not that the scriptures are insufficient. It's not that God has not done enough miracles. It's the height of arrogance for someone to say, whether in the church or outside the church, for them to say, No, I need more. Need more than that. I need, because I'm special. And so God needs to do something special for me because, you know, the scriptures may be good enough for everybody else, for, for the, but I need something more. But the problem is not a lack of evidence. You can provide all the evidence in the world. You can, you can provide all the evidence that's even not of this world. And it will not be enough because the problem is not lack of evidence. The problem is idolatry and the unbelief that is attached to it. Unbelief. Does not produce idolatry. Idolatry uh, produces unbelief, or at least it is attached to it inextricably, because the human heart attaches itself to an idol, and it must. You cannot love God and money, Jesus said. You either love one and hate the other. And so because idolatry is not, uh, 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 sorry, when we say unbelief, we don't mean the lack or the lack of uh, any presence of any belief whatsoever. What we mean is that when we say unbelief, it's unbelief in the gospel, unbelief in God, unbelief in God's word, It's unbelief in particular things. Unbelief is not trusting God in his word and placing our trust somewhere else, placing our belief somewhere else. And so to love money over God is to place our trust in created things rather than the creator. And then we build up a fortress of protective walls around our money, our stuff, around our idols. We build a fortress of protection around our unbelief, justifying it by claiming there isn't enough evidence to believe what God says. That my love of money... Is actually producing tangible results in my life that I enjoy. So you know what, I'm gonna stick with that. One of my seminary professors has a brother who's a millionaire, a business guy. He's made several million dollars, and he and and uh, and so um, and his other and my professor, he's a philosopher. <laughs> he's a philosophy major, so he didn't make a lot of money. <laughs> you don't make a lot of money in, in philosophy. <laughs> and so he said. Uh, and somebody asked his brother, he said, so uh, so how much is enough, how much money is enough for you? His brother said, I think when I make my next million. Right? When I, it's always when I make my next million. It's always when I make my next $100,000, next half a million, next $10,000, my next 10 bucks. I mean, you can add the zeros on it, but it's always when I make my next, right? That's when it'll be enough. We need to watch ourselves that we do not say, well, God needs to show me. I need something more than his word. That was actually my primary issue with the book Jesus Calling is not the benefit that people have derived from it. My issue is with the original introduction that the publisher removed from the book later on, where the lady who wrote it literally said, the word of God is inspired in an errand. It's the word of God, but I needed something more, and so I wrote this book. Okay, and then others have noticed that Jesus Jesus sounds a lot like a middle class white lady, but <laughs> um, uh, and through the book. But um, uh, but do we need more than the scriptures? It is a sure sign of idolatry and unbelief. When we say things like this. Because even if God started bringing in plagues of frogs and raining fire from the sky, if we will not believe the word of God, we will not believe. Let's be like, well, that's weird. No, that's weird weather we're getting today. We underestimate the sufficiency of God's word because we underestimate the depravity of the human heart. And part of this stems from the fact that we, uh, that we are not purely rational creatures. One of the reasons that people demand extraordinary evidence uh, is not because of the biblical claims regarding sin and repentance, but from the extraordinary desire that a person has for the Bible not to, de- not to be true. Because people say, I want to live life on my terms and no one else's, not even God's. Well, so what is the answer then? This is a pretty hard parable. If the rich man's brothers won't take the scriptures seriously and, and, and even miracles won't convince them, then how is it possible for the rich men to be saved? Well, we are the problem, Jesus says, but the answer is Christ. We are the problem, but the answer is Christ. If our, it is our Savior who says the answer to that very question just a few chapters after this, that what is impossible with man is possible with God. We are unable, but God is able. Where we have fallen short of God's righteous standard, Christ has exceedingly obeyed God from the heart. Where we have lacked compassion upon the weak and the needy, God has displayed compassion through His Son where we have distrusted God and turned to creation for our help, and, and in doing so, called it wise and good, Christ has fully trusted our Heavenly Father and been crucified for our foolishness and evil. The grace of God illuminates our, our, our hearts and our minds by the Spirit's power, so that we can accept the reality that we are sinners worthy of condemnation in the sight of the Holy Judge. Further, the Spirit leads us to place our trust in Jesus Christ so that we will be pardoned and accepted by God. And all of this is accordance with the Word of God concerning His blessed Son, who is the very Word of God come in the flesh. Part of the purpose of this parable is to confront us with our worldliness, which is something that we're always having to battle. I'm always having to battle this. Jesus wants to confront us with the reality that one day we will die and face judgment for our sin. And further, that God has provided all the evidence in the world, the world that he has created and through the special revelation of the scriptures. If we will not believe his word, we will not believe anything. But the answer to our problem cannot be found in becoming generous donors to charitable causes. That is not the primary point of this parable. The answer can only be found by running to Jesus, who is the word of God incarnate, come to bring light into our darkness and transform us by faith in his name, into children of light. And so today we are invited not only to confront the worldliness of our hearts, but to cast down our idols and to flee to Jesus and to trust in him. Because if we trust in him, we most certainly will end up by his side in glory as those who, like Lazarus, have bear the title, he whom God has." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not leave us to worldly desires that consume our minds and hearts and souls. That even as believers who deal with the corruption of the flesh that is making war against us, you bless us and you confront us and you strengthen us by your Spirit. To, make, to fight and to expose the, the, the ways that sin has taken root, the ways sin has snuck in the door. And so, Father, we pray that you would open up clearly for us the ways and bring them before our eyes, in our own lives, in our own hearts, that we have become lovers of the world, lovers of money, that we have indulged in the desires of the flesh, and that we would repent of those things. We pray that you would give us opportunities to love and care for those in need. And Father, help us, give us wisdom to navigate very complicated issues and, and difficult questions that we have to answer about how much do we help? How do we help? What is actually, uh, how would we actually define what really uh, help is? But Lord, may we not get lost in making excuses or it just get lost in, 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 a, in, in trying to uh, in a sea of charitable options. But rather, Lord, may we seek to worship you from the heart, to be devoted unto Christ wholly and completely. And may you guide us, Father, that we may be along with Lazarus, those whom God helps by your grace and mercy and love. For we look forward to that day where we stand in your blessed presence in honor and glory. And we lift up praise to the name, to the Lamb, who is slain who stands as the lion of Judah and who is worthy of glory and praise forever and we pray this in Jesus name amen